Well, as you know, we have been making our way through the wonderful gospel of Mark. And Mark provides this account of Jesus's ministry, as we've talked about, really and primarily from Peter's perspective. And so we come today to what is likely the final passage that was originally penned by Mark. Now, if you look in your Bible, um, if you look up here here at the screen, it shows that we're going to be ending in verse 8. And if you look in your Bible, you'll realize that there's more than just verse 8 in the book of Mark. Well, the reality is that that additional section that follows verse 8 was likely not written by Mark. So we are still going to cover that. Cam is going to cover that for us next week, uh, Lord willing. But I want to bring this up just to mention that today's passage really represents the capstone of the book of Mark. These were the final thoughts that Mark, moved by the Holy Spirit, wanted to leave with us. We covered Jesus's crucifixion last week, which we saw was at once the most heinous and yet most blessed event in all of human history. Heinous in that our Lord was viciously accused, abused, tortured, and violently killed by sinful men. And during the final three hours on the cross, accentuated by that supernatural darkness that fell over the land at that time, the Father dumped out upon Jesus the crushing weight of his full fury over sin something that we cannot even comprehend. I, I think it's appropriate that there was darkness there because sin was being addressed in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus, bearing our sin in his body on that cross, purchased our redemption, enabling the full expression of God's grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, adoption, and every other expression of his goodness that we enjoy today to some degree, but look forward to eternity when we will enjoy in its fullest expression. The wonderful reality is that while the cross was monumental and crucial for our redemption, that Jesus's death is not the end of the story. As the song states um, that was sung on Easter, it was just the end of the beginning. It's just starting. There lies today outside the ancient city of Jerusalem an empty tomb. Our Lord is alive. And in Mark's final section, he's going to focus on that monumental truth. So as we get into that, something that I want to consider is this aspect of the gospel, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in reality, the resurrection is the bedrock foundation of the Christian gospel. Of course, Jesus's death and and his atonement for sin were necessary and all of that. But if there is an anchor for our souls, so to speak, it is in the resurrection. In this one event, God confirmed publicly for all to see several great realities. We see in that the resurrection proves the absolute moral perfection and innocence of Jesus Christ. It demonstrates the acceptance by the Father of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. It confirms 
that all that Jesus said and taught is absolutely true. It affirms Jesus' full authority. There's a couple of passages that make it very clear, if it's not clear already, but in John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, Jesus had just cleansed the temple for the first time, and that was very, very early in the beginning part of his ministry. And the Jews, verse 18 says, Then the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? In verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, he was speaking about his death and resurrection. So his point was, his authority is affirmed and confirmed by the fact that he was raised. Another passage in another discussion in John chapter 10, Jesus talked about the fact that he would lay down his life for the sheep, and he said this, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Now, who can say that? I have authority to lay down my life and the authority to take it back up again. Only Jesus. He's the only one. This also, the resurrection also proves that Jesus was who, it, tr it proves who he truly was and affirms his mission. That he was God, the second member of the Trinity. That he was the divine Messiah King sent by the Father to redeem sinners. It also proves to us the doctrine of the resurrection of believers. As Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15.20 that Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruits of those who have died. That concept of the first fruits is a reference to the early grain that would be picked and waved before the Lord as an offering of an, and the expectation of a full harvest to come later. By the way, the Feast of First Fruits, I, I always think this is interesting, the Feast of First Fruits falls immediately after Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, at, immediately as that was done, the Feast of First Fruits. So Christ was sacrificed effectively on Passover, and then uh, emblematic is that he was our first fruits uh, of the resurrection, which is a tremendous encouragement. And so there are actually other things that we could mention here about the resurrection, but I mentioned just these, these few, to touch and to make a point. As I stated, the resurrection of Jesus is the bedrock of our faith. Mark covers this event in the final 16 verses of this book. And true to form, he covers this event in the briefest manner of all the four Gospels. And he chooses to focus in on a few key details that I believe are absolutely intended to be an apologetic for the truth of the res resurrection. And by apologetic, I mean a defense. It is critical that the fact of the resurrection be clearly established. So as we approach the passage today, I want to think about it to some extent in, in that light. Our enemy has gone to great lengths to discredit the veracity of the resurrection. And the attacks on the resurrection 
um, uh, there's a couple of major categories that they fall into. One is to deny that Jesus really died. And they come up with all these different, the swoon theory and other things that says, that suggests that, well, he wasn't really dead. Of course, that's not what the biblical record shows at all. Um, another claim is that there was no resurrection, and they come up with all manner of different uh, mechanisms to try to suggest that, one of which being that the empty tomb was faked. Of course, both of these are ridiculous, but I think what's helpful to see is, as we consider those things, to look at how the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Mark, affirms the truth that we know. And so as we get into this final section in Mark, uh, it's appropriate, I think, that this is another of the Markan sandwiches that we've seen several times already. Uh, and of course, with, a, with this, uh, what we see is that Mark introduces a storyline, and then he pivots and goes down a different direction and a different storyline, and then he comes back to that original storyline, making that sandwich. So we're going to see that again. And in this case, he chose to tell these different storylines primarily through the perspective, perspectives of three women who were direct eyewitnesses to the events that unfolded. I think it's kind of interesting. He could have explained what Peter saw and heard, um, but Peter wasn't at the cross. He was hiding. Um, he could have talked about John. John was at the cross uh, or one of the other apostles, but instead he chose these three women about whom we don't know all that much, although we are going to see some things as we get into it. So let's take a look at the text. And if you haven't already, please turn to Mark 15 and we'll begin here in verse 40. So the scene that's here is still at the cross. And at this point, Jesus has just died. And so we'll examine here in these first couple of verses these three remarkable eyewitnesses that Mark introduces us to. So verse 40 says, There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up to him to Jerusalem came up with him to Jerusalem. So first what we see here is that these three eyewitnesses are identified. Um, so the first one is Mary Magdalene. Now the term Magdalene there just refers to the town where Mary was from, uh, which was Magdala, which was on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, several miles south of Capernaum. And so we can Read about her in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, uh, where it says, Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And of course, this is referring to Jesus's Galilean ministry. And he says, The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So this Mary had been healed by Jesus from a devastating demon possession and had chosen at that point to tangibly help Jesus' ministry, which we'll see here in a second. 
So it's clear that she had a long pattern of sacrificial dedication to and support for Jesus. So the next person that we see here was Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Now it's specifically told us James the less, uh, which literally means little. Now, I don't know if he was offended by that, but I, I suspect some might be. Um, it is, so we, we actually don't know that much at all about this Mary. She is identified by her sons, James the Less and Joseph. Um, it's likely that this James is James, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the 12 disciples. Now, we can't be completely sure there, but that seems to be the case. And then Joseph here was also mentioned, and even though he wasn't a disciple, one of the 12, he is probably identified because he would have been known to the early church, even to the church in Rome, primarily to whom Mark was writing. And that's about all that we know about this woman, except for the fact that she, like Mary Magdalene, exemplified a pattern of faithful support of Jesus. The third woman that we see here is Salome. Now, we do know a little bit more about her. We know from a comparison of the texts that she is the mother of James and John. She's the wife of Zebedee and was almost certainly the sister of Jesus's mother, Mary, making her Jesus's aunt. So Salome was the one who approached Jesus that's recorded for us in Matthew 20, 20, and asked that her sons be permitted to sit on Jesus's left and right in the kingdom. Now, that was a bold request. Basically, James and John had their mom go ask Jesus if they could sit at his right and left. Um, according to Matthew chapter 20, verse 24, and also in Mark 10, the other disciples were really upset with them about this. They didn't like what they did. But back to Salome, being the mother of James and John, she would have lived in Capernaum, which served as Jesus's primary headquarters when he, while he was ministering in Galilee. So Salome, no doubt, would have been very involved in helping Jesus as he ministered. So, Next, we see here in the text, in verse 41, the eyewitnesses are described. And based on this verse, I think we can see three primary things about these women. Number one, we're told that they were Jesus's, that they followed Jesus. And I think the point here is that they followed Jesus as his true disciples. Now, it is also true that they physically followed Jesus around in his ministry and even followed him to Jerusalem at this point, um, but we're actually told here that they used to follow him, and this is a reference to the ministry of Jesus back in Galilee that they helped to support. Again, the, I don't see here that the point being just that it was a physical following around, but rather that they were faithful disciples committed to living out and advancing what he taught. Secondly, we see that they were faithful ministers to Jesus and supporters of his mission. There's the phrase there in verse 41 that says that they would minister to him. The Greek word there for minister is the term, or is the word from which we get our word deacon. Um, it literally means to serve, to wait on, to attend to, etc. 
And it meant that these women were involved in supporting the physical needs of Jesus, preparing and serving food, cleaning, washing clothes, setting up tables, helping from an administrative perspective from the di for the different ministry needs that were there. These women were the ones behind the scenes that enabled Jesus to focus on his teaching, healing, presenting the gospel, traveling around, and so on. We can read in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, that uh, I read part, a portion of this earlier, that he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven d demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing their support out of their private means. That's the key. They were assisting Jesus in his ministry, both by meeting the physical needs of the ministry and providing financial support, apparently from the money that they had stuffed aside in the cookie jars. So these women demonstrate their faithfulness in that they stuck with it. They were supporting Jesus in the early parts of his Galilean ministry, and here we find them again in the background, continuing their faithfulness to Jesus. By this point, the rest of the disciples had fled. It was only these women that were there. Now, John was there at the cross as well, but he was the, apparently the only disciple. Um, but not these women. They were there all along. And we'll see that they continue to be there throughout the remainder of this story. Another point, um, if you look at that last part of verse 41, says, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So on this one, I'm going to admit that I'm standing a little bit out on a limb to some degree, but the question is, why would Mark include this statement here? Um, is, Mark, is Mark's point that these were just three of the many women that Mark could have chosen to highlight? Maybe, but I don't think so. I think there's more to it than that. It's interesting that Mary Magdalene is typically mentioned first in the lists of women that we see that were supporting Jesus' ministry, and in almost every case, she's listed first. Uh, if you look at the disciples, the lists of disciples, who is listed first? It's Peter. Peter was seen as the primary leader. Um, so it's, it's an indication that these three women are likely in positions of leadership. So they were likely leaders of other women. So I think that's a very reasonable thing to conclude, although I have to admit it is maybe a little bit out on the limb as far as the text goes. But... Um, but I think we can see that or conclude that these women were the, th the primary leaders of the larger group of women who were committed to faithfully serve Jesus. And I think that's remarkable. Again, where were the disciples at the cross? They were gone. They were hiding. They were scared. These women were there. They were with him from the beginning of his ministry to the end. Um, 
the faithfulness that we see there, I think, is remarkable. I was just talking with Vikram before class about uh, this shepherding ministry and such. And, and one of the things that he mentioned, I'm probably going to mess up exactly what he said, but one of the things that he mentioned is that a lot of times in ministry, uh, especially this kind of a ministry, it was about doing all of the little things faithfully. And I think that's spot on. I think that's what we see in these women, that they were doing the little things, the behind the scenes, not the showy stuff, not the stuff that's out front, but they were there behind the scenes, ministering faithfully. And that's extraordinary. So next, we come to the sandwiched portion of the text. So we're going to shift storylines a bit here. And what we're going to see is the providential burial of Jesus in verses 42 through 47. Now, as I mentioned earlier, one of the ways that the resurrection of Jesus is, attach, is attacked is this crazy assertion that Jesus didn't really die. It's helpful to understand that the way Jesus was actually buried, given the circumstances, would have been highly unlikely in that situation. The bodies of criminals who were executed could be turned over to a family member, although it was not always allowed. Um, it was really up to the whims of the person in charge to grant the, the request, which in this case would have been Pilate. Um, however, in the case of insurrection or sedition against Rome, which was the official charge against Jesus, turning over the body in that case was never permitted. In fact, uh, these criminals would have been assigned to a mass grave that would have been an, a mass unmarked grave. Point is, they're not even going to be honored in the burial. And so we see even in Isaiah 53 that it says that his grave was assigned with wicked men. Jesus, and as the normal things went, he would have been shoved into a mass grave along with the two criminals that were uh, executed beside him, and they would have covered it up, and nobody would necessarily know where he was. Well, that can't work. That doesn't work for the story. For several reasons, Jesus's body could not have been relegated to that typical mass unmarked grave. For one, it wouldn't fulfill the scripture that's there in Isaiah 53, but it would also leave us without one of the most important pieces of evidence of Jesus's resurrection, which is the empty tomb. Jesus's burial helps to affirm that Jesus's death was real, and the nature of his burial and the subsequent empty tomb stand as key evidence that Jesus's body wasn't stolen or lost or anything like that. The only reasonable explanation, given the facts, is resurrection. So what we see here first is a surprising request from an unexpected source, verse 42 through 43. So it says, when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So this passage here begins in verse 42 with the setting, which he identifies the time of day as evening. Now, when we first read this, we're 
tempted to think our own definition of evening, but in Jewish thinking, there were actually two evenings. Uh, basically from mid-afternoon, which would be around 3 p.m., maybe a little bit later, but 3 p.m. to sunset, and then from s the second evening would be from sunset to darkness, uh, which would be more along the lines of what we typically think of when we think of evening. So this is referring to that first evening that would have begun around mid-afternoon. So by this point, Jesus had already died. We're also told here that this was the preparation day, which Mark spells out was the day before the Sabbath. So clearly we know from the text this was Friday afternoon. <clears throat> now, by this point um, that we get to here, we, uh, the Jewish leaders had already gone to Pilate and asked for the prisoners' legs to be broken so that they could quickly die and then be taken down and buried before sunset as Jewish law required the bodies to be dealt with before sunset. So that part of the story is recorded for us in the book of John. And of course, that's where the soldiers came up and found Jesus already dead. But just to make sure, they took a spear and shoved it up under his rib cage into his chest cavity, piercing his heart. Um, and at that point, Jesus, Jesus's blood had already begun to separate and settle, uh, which just proves his death. Um, because as it talks about, it came out came water and blood, which just means that blood is separating. It's not circulating anymore. And then, so, and then after that, someone came forward to ask for Jesus's body. And this was an unexpected someone. And so the source of that request was, of course, as we see, Joseph of Arimathea. So who was this man? So first off, in order to distinguish him from the other Josephs, this man is associated with the town that he came from. So that town is called Arimathea, and it was about 15 miles north of Jerusalem. Now the language actually suggests that he didn't continue to live there. He was just from there, likely because he was a part of the council, the Jerusalem council, Likely he lived in Jerusalem by this point, although we can't be sure. But it, at least he came from that small town of Arimathea. We're also told that he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. So he was a part of that 70-member group of Jews, Jewish leaders, uh, which would be similar to our Congress, although this group had much more power than our Congress. But not only was he a member of the Sanhedrin, but it says he was a prominent member. This means that he held a position of considerable authority. Might be like he was the Speaker of the House, so to speak. Maybe not quite that high, but uh, he was one of the people that were high up in that assembly. This meant that he held a position of considerable authority. It was, a, it was an important man. Now, this is very interesting to me because who would have thought that a member, a high up member, a high ranking member of the very group that passed judgment on Jesus and condemned him to die would be there saying, uh-uh, no, this isn't right. And so what we see here is that this man stood up full, visible, in support of Jesus. We also know from other texts, and, and even from this one, 
that this man was a disciple of Jesus. We see that in Matthew and in John. And then here Mark describes him as waiting for the kingdom of God. And so this was a man who was eagerly anticipating the long-promised Messiah, and I think he likely believed Jesus to be that Messiah. John also adds in chapter 19, verse 38, he says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. So although he was a true follower of Christ, he up until this point kept it secret because he feared the Jewish leadership. And not without good reason. Following Christ in that day had very real and very severe consequences that could have destroyed his businesses or his business, eliminated his position, and even ostracized him from his family and friends. He would have been shunned, thrown out of society. So it's understandable that he's been reticent to declare his full support for Jesus. But here at this point, he stands up. Now, we also know from Matthew that he was very wealthy. We know from Luke that he was a good and upright man. We also know from Luke that he had not agreed with the Sanhedrin in condemning Jesus. And then the final thing that I'll mention here from verse 43, this is where we're told that he gathered up courage. It's kind of an interesting word picture, right? It's kind of like the courage is all over the floor and he's trying to gather up the pieces of it. Um, of course, that's not exactly the Greek word. Um, but uh, it's an interesting question here. What caused Joseph to put his fear behind him and act at this point? I mean, Jesus was dead. For all he knew, it was over. But he stands up and he acts. So why then? And I, I can't help but wonder if it was because he was so disgusted with the actions of the Sanhedrin that day that it emboldened him to act. There was, in that moment, I, I think that he saw that a line had been crossed and it was a line that he could not ignore. So he acted and he, prov he determined that he would provide an honorable burial for Jesus. And so, galvanized by a newfound resolve, he boldly approached Pilate and requested the body. So the request there that we see was just a request to take custody of the body. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in cases of sedition and treason, this was not permitted under Roman law, but as we will see, Pilate will grant the request, and I think likely because it's clear that Pilate himself didn't agree with the direction and the condemnation of Jesus. But before Pilate could grant that body, he had to confirm something first. And so that's where we see the formal certification of Jesus' death. So verse 44, this is after Joseph's request. Pilate wondered if he, meaning Jesus, was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So I won't spend too much time here, but this is a clear statement about the legitimate physical death of Jesus that was confirmed by the centurion whose own life was on the line if he got this one wrong. 
Roman soldiers knew very well what death looked like. Jesus was unmistakably dead, and it was confirmed by the centurion, and then if officially certified by Pilate, who agreed to allow Joseph to take the body. If Jesus was still alive, Pilate would have never signed off. So as we discussed previously, there are those that want to suggest that Jesus didn't really die that day, but it's clearly a ludicrous suggestion that is not supported in any way by the clear biblical record. So the next section that we see here is the preparation of Jesus' body for burial. Beginning in verse 46, it says, Joseph bought a linen cloth and took him down, meaning took Jesus down from the cross, wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewed out in a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. So for this section, I'm also going to meld in some of the descriptions from the other Gospels. So first, what we see here is that there was some preparation that was made. So Mark writes that Joseph bought a linen cloth. Now, linen was not the typical cloth that was used for burial. It was expensive. This just shows again that Joseph was determined to provide an honorable burial for Jesus in direct contrast to the actions of the rest of the Sanhedrin. Now, per the Jewish burial rituals, the first thing that would have been done is that the body would have been washed and then the body would typically have been coated in aromatic spices and resins that had been made essentially into a paste, and then they would be wrapped in a, in a cloth. In this case, it was this linen cloth that, Mark, uh, I'm sorry, that Joseph had purchased. And so that although Mark only mentions Joseph here, he was not the only one involved in this process. John fills us in that Nicodemus also helped. Um, in verse, John, verse, John chapter 19, verses 39 through 40, says Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, we saw that in John 3, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. That's a lot. Um, and that, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So Nicodemus was there helping out. Um, now, one thing I want to point out here is that this was something the clock was ticking. They had to get this done before the sunset. Um, so they had to do this probably in a rather hasty manner because we're going to see that the women that were there watching intended to come back on Sunday morning and likely do a more thorough job, um, finish the job as it were. But the clock was ticking and they had to act and act quickly to get this done. And so um, even though there was a lot of spices and such that was there, um, apparently the perception was they were just trying to hurry and get it done. So next we can see here in the text the garden tomb. So Mark states that after they had wrapped the body in the cloth and spices, they laid him in the tomb, which in a tomb, which had been hewn out in the rock. Now, we know some other things about this tomb. John 19, verse 41 says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. 
So this was a new tomb, as we see, that had never been used. And it was close by the place where Jesus was crucified. So uh, then in Matthew 27, verses 59 and 60, we can see that this tomb actually belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. So it was his tomb that he had personally had carved out. Um, it's kind of interesting. One of the, as I was listening to Tom talk about this passage, uh, one of the points that he made is that Jesus is the only man in history to borrow a tomb and use it for only three days. So... Um, very appropriate so next we see here in the passage that the tomb was sealed after placing Jesus in the tomb according to verse 46 Joseph rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb now this stone would have been very large circular cut stone possibly four feet maybe even more in diameter and these stones would typically move within a track that would slope down towards the opening these would weigh several hundred pounds at least and typically required several men to move them. Point is, Jesus' tomb was secure. By the way, Joseph, being a wealthy guy, he wasn't going to skimp on the stone. Um, likely this was as large a stone as they come, um, so it was very secure. Uh, it was not an easy thing to get into. So, the last point I'll make here is just looking at this from the perspective of Scripture. This absolutely and clearly fulfills Old Testament prophecy. One of the most thorough Old Testament passages that foretells Jesus' suffering and death is, of course, Isaiah 53. But Isaiah 53, verse 9 says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet... He was with a rich man in his death. That's exactly what we see here. It's amazing. 700 years before that, God is inspiring Isaiah to write this, writing that God had a plan and purpose for Joseph, even though Joseph was scared and wasn't ready to stand up yet at the right time, God so moved and motivated him to stand to absolutely bring about what he had predicted. But there's actually more. Um, in that verse, if we keep reading, it says, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So not only were Joseph's actions used by God to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy, prophecy but that fulfillment affirmed a very important truth, which was Jesus's complete innocence. The reason that Joseph of Arimathea stood up at that point and said, I'll take the body, was because God needed to make a statement that Jesus was absolutely perfect. Moral perfection. It's amazing how God can work and act in the hearts of an individual to bring about exactly his purposes. And we can take great confidence in that. And the last section that we see, your last verse that we see here, is in verse 48. Um, and that's where Mark brings us back to the women that he introduced in 
verse 40. And so here they are again in the background, but they're noting where Jesus was laid. And they watched this whole process unfold. They saw Jesus die. They probably saw the soldiers pierce his side. They saw Joseph take Jesus' body down from the cross. They watched as his body was washed, covered with spices and carefully wrapped. They watched him being laid in the tomb, and they watched as the stone was rolled into place. Matthew records it like this in Matthew 27, 61. says, And Mary Magdalene was there, with, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the grave. Now, that's interesting. They're sitting opposite the grave, just watching. And that, and that verse, by the way, was after the stone had been rolled into place. You kind of get the picture that these women couldn't do anything but sit there in grief and sadness. But all that they saw that day made them the perfect eyewitnesses. It didn't seem as though they were involved with the final, with the preparation of Jesus' body on that day, but we also know that they were making preparations of their own. Luke 23, 55 and 56 say, Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. So they had plans to more fully anoint Jesus' body, and they planned to get started first thing Sunday morning. And that, of course, brings us to what they found that Sunday morning, or maybe to the point what they didn't find Sunday morning. But what they found was the empty tomb, and we see that in in chapter 16. So at first, uh, there was this early morning trip to the tomb from verses 1 through 3. It says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome, those are the same three women, They brought spices so they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb, and when the sun had risen, (coughs) they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So here uh, we find again these three faithful women up early and on their way to the tomb to complete the preparation and care for Jesus' body. And on the way, they began to discuss how in the world Were they going to roll that large stone away from the entrance? Valid question. But next we see that they, when they got there, things weren't what they expected. There was this open tomb and the angelic messenger. So, you know, sometimes I think we who have heard this story for decades are at a little bit of a disservice maybe. I wish we could recapture the surprise here. I've mentioned in, the past, in past lessons that this story is a story with high drama, with intrigue, mystery, and suspense. It reads like a mystery thriller. And just at the point when all hope is lost, when darkness seems to have won, when the evil forces have quenched the righteous flame, when the Characters resign themselves to closing out that previous chapter of their lives. There comes a plot twist. Suddenly there's a faint glimmer of hope. Something that doesn't make any sense at first. And you begin to think maybe 
just maybe not all hope is lost. And although things are still fuzzy and unclear, something is different. There's a new resolve and a new boldness and ultimately a better understanding that ultimately gives way to complete understanding. So try to think about this as if you were a disciple of Jesus and Jesus had just been executed. What would you do? What would you think? It wasn't supposed to turn out this way. How would you move forward from that? You had just poured your life into this ministry and the person uh, that was all centered around is dead. Where do you go from there? Well, in this story, there is about to be the plot twist of all plot twists. Although maybe it should have been expected because Jesus made it clear that this was going to happen, those that were around weren't expecting. What these women saw that Sunday morning was shocking. Talk about a roller coaster of emotions. But let's look at the passage. So verse 4, it says, Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. So as they arrive there at the tomb, tomb, they are astounded to see that the stone has already been rolled away. So they look inside, and instead of finding the body of Jesus, an angel appeared to them. Now Luke says in chapter 24, verses two, verse 2, it says, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And when they were perplexed about this, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, and the women were terrified. Matthew also records that there were two angels, not just one. But Mark here focuses focuses on the angel who spoke. Um, Now, I have to say that the translation that's here um, doesn't really convey the sense of the Greek word very well, and that's the translation of the word that's amazed here in this passage. And the sense of this Greek word is a combination of sheer terror and extreme mental astonishment. In other words, this blew their minds and scared them half to death. That's the idea. They didn't know what to think or how to process what they were seeing. And then this being began to speak. So we see the angelic message in verses 6 through 7. It says, And he said to them, Do not be amazed. I know what you're doing here. Uh, You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the point of the angelic message here, very clear. Jesus is risen. The angels started out this where he says, do not be amazed or I think we could maybe translate this in our vernacular, stop freaking out. Come back to reality. Yes, this is really happening. Everything's going to be okay. And then the angel makes four connected logical statements. 
He told them first who they were looking for. Um, so just to make sure that they didn't misunderstand anything, um, he's telling them what they're there to do. And so it's clear that he knows what he's talking about. It's kind of an interesting statement that he makes there. And then he makes this next statement. He is risen. Short, to the point. Goes on to say he's not here anymore. He's gone. And then finally they could see for themselves. Those four statements, they're looking for Jesus. He's risen. He's no longer there. And they could see it for themselves. Is really all that Mark has to say um, about this event. It's kind of a mic drop type moment. What more needs to be said? They're looking for Jesus. He's not there. He's risen, and they can see for themselves. And then there's a message for the disciples that Jesus would go ahead of them to Galilee, just as he had promised. Now, in this assurance, there's also an implied command. There's something they need to be doing. They need to get up and begin walking in obedience and do what Christ outlined for them to do. Note as well that this message was designated for the disciples, but then Peter was specifically called out. Now, this is interesting. If we go back a couple of chapters, we find this. Uh, there was a discussion that occurred after they left the upper room after celebrating Passover and were on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. So Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 28 says, And Jesus said to them, meaning the disciples, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Um, did they fall away? They certainly did. They weren't there at the cross, except for John. Um, verse 28 there says, But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So then right after that section, we find that Peter's insisting that he won't fall away, and Jesus told Peter he would deny him three times, and so on. But I mentioned this, I, I mentioned this when we covered it several weeks ago, but this is kind of an odd pairing of verses. You're going to fall away, and I'm going ahead of you to Galilee. What was Jesus' point? And I think the point that Jesus was making then is that Jesus wasn't done with them yet. Their failure in that moment was not the end of the story. Jesus had other plans. He had more uh, for them to accomplish. And so when they failed, the next thing that they needed to do was walk in obedience again. And I think the reason that Peter was signaled out, singled out here was both because Peter was the primary leader of the disciples, but also because of Peter's failure in denying Jesus was the greatest of all the failures. So I believe this message was intended to be one of tremendous encouragement to the disciples. Imagine hearing from Jesus after you've failed. Time to go. We have work to do. That would be great, because you're thinking, now the boom's going to get lowered now I'm going to experience all the consequences. And, and the answer is, okay, come on, we got work to do. All's forgiven. And there's more to be accomplished. So the other part uh, that we see here is that Jesus tells them that they would appear to them there. So the final part of the message is that 
Jesus would do just as he uh, promised that he would appear to them. So we see then the women's initial response. Verse 8 says, They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now we know from the rest of the gospel records that the women actually did inform the disciples, but it apparently took a little bit. Um, I think Mark here is focusing on the immediate response, just to use his seemingly favorite word, immediate, that he has all throughout his book. But it makes sense. I'm sure they needed a minute to collect their thoughts. And as they began to grasp the reality of what they had seen and heard, we know from the other gospel records that their amazement began to turn to joy. And they responded. Well, that's it. That's how the book of Mark ends. The other gospel writers, of course, go into substantially more detail, cataloging, cataloging several appearances of Jesus. But Mark here keeps it short and direct with the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And although the additional evidence of Jesus' res resurrection is in, recorded in the other New Testament books is overwhelming. There is no question at all from the biblical record that Jesus was truly raised. Mark, short and sweet, captured the salient points. Jesus has risen. He's no longer there in the tomb. And you can see for yourself. That tomb stands empty today. And he is still at work today in and through his chosen followers. And what a great God we serve. Well, there's some lessons that struck me, um, and there's, of course, many, but there's just a few that I will call out. And this first one, I, I almost hesitated to, to call this out, given what has gone on in our culture. And I don't want this to sound like I'm capitulating to any kind of cultural whims or anything like that. However, this is part of the biblical record, and this is the point. Women were an integral part of the ministry of Jesus. As we see in this story, women are called to follow Christ, to be faithful to him, and in some cases be in leadership positions over other women. This is an important part of the operation of the body of Christ as the church. And while men and women are called to have different roles within the church, the importance of these roles can't be compared, really. Faithful women are a necessary part of the properly functioning church, just as they were a necessary part of Jesus' ministry. Another point that I, I think we see here is that even behind the scenes, faithfulness can become a shining example for others. In this case, because of their committed pattern of faithfulness to Jesus, Mark leverages the eyewitness accounts of these remarkable women, not someone else. When this was the case, partially because many of Jesus' closest companions had abandoned him and weren't there. So faithfulness in the small things, in the little things, you never know how God can use it and what he will do. It's interesting as well that the first person that Jesus appeared to was who? I heard it. Mary Magdalene. That's right. 
another thing, uh, we've touched on this already, but those who would deny the physical death of Jesus can only do so by denying the insurmountable evidence in the gospel record. There's just no way that that's a valid suggestion. And then secondly, those who suggest that Jesus' resurrection is somehow faked are just saying that the following witnesses are liars. So they have to discount the infallible word of God. They have to discount Mark and the other New Testament writers, the angels who announced his resurrection, the women who saw everything, the 11 disciples to whom Jesus appeared, ultimately even Paul, then 500 followers of Jesus uh, who, to whom he appeared at one point, and the Holy Spirit. That's who you're up against. That is, there is more than enough eyewitness testimony to prove this fact in any court of law. The great thing is that our salvation Pardon me. Our salvation is secure because he is risen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Paul has just in 1 Corinthians 15 ended a discussion about the realities of the resurrection. And he ends it like this, where he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's a great reminder. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed at the fact that you have chosen us to come to hear and to know and understand the truth. Lord, we, we give you praise and honor because of what you accomplished in the cross, and in Jesus' resurrection. We thank you that in those facts that cannot be overtaken, that we have a salvation that is sure, an anchor for our souls, and that we, as a result, can be steadfast and immovable. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to do your work in us. We pray that if there's anyone here who has not come to a saving knowledge of you, that you would today bring them to their knees, cause them to turn in humble repentance to embrace Christ and all that he has accomplished. We also just pray for your ongoing and continued work in us who are saved, that, that we would recognize that our toil, when it's done for your glory and for your purposes, is not in vain. That you can use the least of us to bring about your perfect purposes. And we thank you that you often do. It's in Christ that we ask all these things. Amen.